Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, good morning, Crosspoint. It feels so good to have so many of you joining us in person. The top half of your faces all look lovely today. Uh, And of course, whether you are joining us in the worship center, in Simpson Hall, or from home, I am just so glad that we get to worship together today. Now, I would like to give a special welcome to the two newest members of our Crosspoint team, Hannah Peters and Carly Uglum. Uh, Hannah and Carly, if you missed their introduction video, are the two newest members of our Crosspoint team. Uh, Make sure you check our social media pages later this week because a video was shown during the pre-gathering. If you missed it, it'll be on Facebook, on Instagram, all those places later this week. Uh, But Hannah and Carly are going to be working with me this summer as we plan and prepare and make kids' capers happen. And they've only been with me in the office for, I think, three days so far, Uh, but already they have done some really incredible work, and I am so thankful to have them on our team. Now, what's interesting is that the position that Hannah and Carly hold with us is actually the same position that I had four years ago when I first started at Crosspoint. So that summer, I worked with the children's pastor, Rebecca, and we put on two weeks of Kids Capers Mission Impossible. And as part of that camp, we took the kids to the art gallery of Alberta and played this huge game of real-life Clue, where the campers had had to determine which culprit had stolen a piece of art from the gallery worth millions upon millions of dollars. And if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure it was Pastor Micah who stole it because he wanted to pay for dental school, was the whole gist there. Now let me just say that taking 50 plus kids to the Art Gallery of Alberta is probably the most stressful thing I have ever done in my life. Because here we are, surrounded by paintings and sculptures that are very breakable and worth a lot of money, and I have to trust that our campers are not going to touch any of them. I have to trust that our campers are not going to run around the gallery, even though they're in a race to be the first team to finish the game. I have to trust that our campers are not going to go out of bounds and see the giant nude portrait installation that is literally taking up an entire wall. I didn't want to explain that one to their parents afterwards. So that time that we spent at the art gallery, I would say it really grew me as a person. You know, it definitely increased my prayer life. Uh, I learned what it means to be fully dependent on God. But I chose to trust in the kids. And the only thing that ended up breaking was like a little small side table in the front lobby. And those are replaceable, so it was probably fine. Now, of course, 
Not everyone joining us today has had to trust a bunch of kids at an art gallery, but you've probably all experienced placing your trust in someone or something. Trusting something means that we have confidence in it, that we're willing to rely on it. So for example, I trust that this table isn't going to fall over in the middle of the message today. I trust that Dave is making sure I look really good on the live stream, right Dave? Thank you. I trust that the kids I live with are going to be nice and quiet today when I come home and take my Sunday afternoon nap. Right, Isla? In our story today, we are going to discover what happens when we choose to place our trust and our confidence in God. But before we jump in, make sure you head on over to thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes to access sermon notes for the message as well as your home group study guide. So if you joined us last Sunday for the first week of our Life of David series, you would have heard Micah share the story of David being anointed king. Now David, he wasn't the first king to rule over Israel, but we know that he was the true king that God intended to place in that role. See, establishing a king in Israel was always a part of God's plan. In Genesis 17, God promised Abraham that kings would come from him. And then in Deuteronomy 17, God describes the kind of king that Israel should have, commanding that it be a man who God himself has chosen. But even though God planned to establish a king in Israel eventually, the Israelites got impatient and decided to take matters into their own hands. Surprise, surprise. The function of the king was to maintain justice, both domestically within Israel, as well as internationally through establishing an effective military force. But the Israelites didn't feel like this was happening. Even though God had raised up and empowered judges to accomplish the king's purpose, the people of Samuel's day viewed kingship as a more permanent office that would eliminate the need to wait for the Lord to raise up a deliverer. By establishing a king, there would always be someone to maintain justice. The Israelites expected that a human king would succeed where they believed the Lord had failed. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people told Samuel to appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Then he gave them a whole long list of reasons why that was a terrible idea. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted to place their trust in a human king who would, presumably, solve all their problems for them. So God told Samuel to give the people what they wanted. And Saul was chosen to be king. Now, from Israel's perspective, he was the perfect guy for the job. 
you know, tall, dark, and handsome, I think he would have looked really nice on the back of a loony. Now, things started out okay for Saul. He defeated the Ammonites and won the trust of his people. But as you continue reading in 1 Samuel, things go downhill pretty quick. But I will let you read more about that on your own time. What's important for us to know today is that Saul is the king that Israel wanted. He's the king that they chose to put their trust in. The guy that they wanted to go out before them and fight their battles. We're going to look at one of those battles today. Perhaps the most famous battle that we see in all of scripture. So if you are in the worship center, Simpson Hall, or at home, pull out your Bible now and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel, it's in the Old Testament, which means that it's right near the beginning of the Bible. Uh, it comes just after Judges and Ruth. And if you find yourself in 2 Samuel, you've gone too far and you need to back up a little bit. Okay, so make your way to 1 Samuel and then flip or swipe over a couple pages to chapter 17. And if you've got your kids with you, uh, make sure you let them help you find that big number 17. So the first thing that we read, looking at verse 1, is that the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And this shouldn't come as much of a surprise to us because the Philistines and the Israelites were constantly in battle with each other. It's like Flames fans and Oilers fans constantly fighting each other, except there's a lot more death between the Philistines and the Israelites. So imagine with me now that we're in Israel, in a land that belonged to Judah at the time, standing in the valley of Elah. So this is what the place looks like today. So there's this nice big valley in the middle, and it's surrounded by mountains on either side. So on the side over here, you've got the Philistine army, then a valley in the middle, and on the mountains over here, you have the Israelite army. The problem for both sides is that neither of them wanted to make the first move. Because as soon as you go into this valley in the middle, the army that's on the other side, still standing on a mountain, can attack you pretty easily. So the Philistines, they come up with a different approach. And what they do is a pretty common practice in the ancient world. Because it means that nations could determine the outcome of a battle without having to use up all their resources or kill entire armies. So the idea is that each side chooses a representative, the two men battle each other, and whoever wins that fight wins the entire battle. You know, it's kind of like a game of rock, paper, scissors, but with incredibly high stakes and a 50-50 chance that you'll die. So of course, the Philistines choose Goliath to be their representative. And I'm going to guess that they've used this battle strategy before, and Goliath has gone undefeated. Because, you know, he's huge and he's strong, and his armor alone weighs more than a small man. This is the challenge that Goliath gives to the Israelites, starting at verse 8. 
and we do need audio with this. Am I not a villain? Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. For if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So that's Goliath's challenge. And there's kind of this unspoken rule that when a nation receives that kind of challenge, the king is the one who has to accept it. You know, that's just what happens when you're the big boss man. But let's read verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Less than 10 chapters ago, the Israelites thought that Saul was going to be the answer to all their problems. They longed for a king who would lead them into battle, achieve military victory, and free them from their oppressors. Saul is the king that the Israelites wanted, but not the king that God intended. Saul is the king who took one look at Goliath and saw nothing but biceps and bronze weaponry. Saul is the king who is unwilling to risk his own neck to accept his military obligations to lead the people who so desperately wanted him as king. The text shows us that the Israelites have placed their trust in a king who is dismayed and terrified at the prospect of fulfilling his kingly duties. But now, David enters the story. Remember that in the previous chapter, 1 Samuel 16, David has been anointed king, and the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. David is the true king of Israel, the guy that God appointed to fulfill God's kingdom plans. And the rest of the story is going to show us just how different David is from Israel's first king. Now we can guess that David is probably under 20 when this story takes place because he hasn't yet enlisted in the army like his older brothers did. And normally, David wouldn't have even had the opportunity to witness the battle. But this thing is dragging on and on and on. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. Forty days for Saul to step up and be the king that his people expected him to be. But as we know, that doesn't happen. And because there probably isn't a snack team on site making turkey sandwiches for the entire army, David's father Jesse sends him to the battle with food for his brothers. Because obviously, Twiddling your thumbs for 40 days is going to leave you pretty famished. Now, I wonder what David is expecting 
as he travels to the valley of Elah. You know, he's probably heard stories about the Israelite army since he was a little boy. The entire nation is trusting these soldiers to fight for them and protect them and win all their battles. David even arrives at the camp just as the army is going out and shouting their war cry. He thinks that he's about to witness an incredible victory for the people of Israel. But instead, he witnesses fear and defeat. Right as David goes to greet his brothers, Goliath comes out again and gives the same challenge. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And how do the soldiers respond? Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. You know, David is bound to be disappointed in the Israelite army, who is only following the example of their mighty leader, King Saul. Their king is now so desperate not to fight that he's started making bribes, saying that the man who fights and kills the Philistine will receive great riches, Saul's own daughter in marriage, and a tax break for the man's entire family. This is the king that the Israelites so badly wanted, the man that they chose to put their trust in. But we're about to see the nature of the man whom God has chosen as king, the one that God is using to fulfill his kingdom plans. Now, David is pretty loud, and he's pretty blunt when he cries out, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? When the other soldiers heard him, it probably sounds like David is saying, why are all of you so wimpy that you haven't gone and defeated this ding-dong already? And if you're a teenage boy, I'm willing to bet that that's exactly the kind of thing you would say in the middle of a battle. But David here, he isn't just talk. He's not trying to make himself look good. He is absolutely serious when he says that he will go and fight the Philistine. And this is really where we start to see the contrast between the two kings. Because, of course, Saul doesn't believe that David is able to go and fight the giant. In verse 33, he says, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Which actually, to Saul's credit, that is a pretty logical argument. You know, think about Flounder from The Little Mermaid. You know, it probably isn't the best idea for him to go and get in a fight with a big, angry shark. Because the odds of him losing are almost guaranteed. And in our story today, David is flounder. But David trusts that God has prepared him for this battle. You know, as a shepherd, David is responsible for defending the flock and protecting his sheep from predators. 
David tells Saul that if ever a lion or a bear took a lamb from the flock, he would go after the beast, strike him, grab his beard, and kill him. David says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David recognizes that God has prepared him through his time as a shepherd. He trusts that this time of preparation will allow him to defeat the Philistine. Now at this point, I'm not convinced that Saul actually thinks David can win the fight. But he is so desperate not to fight the giant himself that he's willing to let a teenager go and do it for him. And then, probably to ease his conscience, Saul clothes David in his own armor. And as the king, Saul's armor is going to be the best of the best. He has trusted this armor to protect him in the past, and he trusts that it might offer some level of protection for David right now. But David chooses not to trust in the armor. He tells Saul that he's not used to the armor. It doesn't fit him well. So he takes it off and instead trusts that God will protect him. Not only does David trust God for protection, he trusts that God will equip him. One of the most famous verses in this story is verse 40, and it says this. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, usually when we hear this story, we imagine that those stones are cute little pebbles. And it amazes us that this is all David would take into battle. But in reality... The stones probably looked more like this. In ancient armies, there were different kinds of warriors. There was the cavalry, the infantry, and in the artillery, there were archers and slingers. And slinging, it took an incredible amount of skill and practice. But if you got good enough, the sling became a devastating weapon. Slingers were known to be deadly accurate, and the speed at which the rock left their sling is equivalent to a bullet leaving a handgun. So imagine a professional baseball player pitching a baseball straight at your face, but instead of a baseball, it's this rock. When David picks up these stones, it's not because he's a wishful thinker hoping that they might end up doing a little bit of damage. David trusts that God has equipped him with a powerful and deadly weapon. He trusts that God has equipped him to win this fight. And of course, 
David goes up against the giant Philistine, trusting that God will fight for him. Now, it was customary before this battle for each representative to give a bit of a speech. You know, mostly just taunting the other person and trying to intimidate them. And the Philistine, he's pretty disgusted when he sees that David is so small and weak. He doesn't think he's a worthy opponent. And so he basically says, you puny little thing, get over here so I can finish you off. But then David has this epic battle speech, and he says this. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand." You come to me. Although David knows that he is prepared and protected and equipped, ultimately, this battle is the Lord's. God will fight for him. And the victory that God brings will be for God's own glory. If you haven't read this story before, uh, you can probably guess how it ends. See, David runs toward the Philistine. He puts a stone in his sling and strikes the Philistine in the forehead. The Philistine falls over dead. And David goes and cuts off the giant's head with the giant's own sword. Just because he wanted a little souvenir to take home. Now, obviously... This is not the outcome that the Philistines were expecting. So rather than honoring the terms of the agreement made at the beginning of the battle, they flee. But they flee in vain because now that the big scary giant has been taken care of, the Israelites are confident enough to pursue the Philistines and plunder their camp. The battle has been won. Victory has been achieved. And we see now why David has been chosen by God to reign as the true king over Israel. Because God uses those who trust in him to fulfill his kingdom plans. Now, what surprised me as I was reading this story is I realized that Goliath isn't a main character. See, the biblical author only uses his proper name, Goliath, three times. And just at the very beginning of the story. The rest of the time, he's just referred to as the Philistine. Which suggests that his identity isn't that important. Instead, Goliath is a tool used by God to show us the difference 
between the two people who are actually the main characters, David and Saul. See, this battle with the giant Philistine is only one small part of a much larger story where David is revealed to be the one who God uses to fulfill his kingdom plans. As you continue reading through the book of Samuel, you will see countless other examples of why Saul has failed as king and why David has been chosen by God to replace him. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read that one of the reasons is because David chooses to place his trust in God. David trusts that God has prepared him. He trusts that God will protect and equip him. He trusts that God will fight the battle for him. And then Saul, on the other hand, places his trust in physical strength and human-made armor, which is no match in a battle with a giant Philistine. Saul's failure to trust in the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, disqualifies him from being chosen as the true king of Israel. Because God uses those who trust in him to fulfill his kingdom plans. Notice that I did not say God uses those who trust in him to defeat giants. Because again, Goliath isn't the main character in this story. I don't think God is telling us that if we have just enough faith in him, every giant will be defeated. Because that wasn't true for David. Yes, he defeated Goliath, but there were plenty of other tragedies in his story. Giants that he did not defeat. And we're going to talk about some of those in the rest of our Life of David series. So make sure you stay tuned in for that. I think all of us have giants in our own lives today. And there's no guarantee that we'll be able to defeat them. You know, whether it's financial burdens or joblessness, cancer or a broken relationship with a family member. You know, it could be an upcoming math test or an acceptance letter to your dream university or a loved one who is deeply opposed to faith in Jesus. We may not be able to win victory over every giant that we face. But the good news is that Christ has defeated the greatest giant of them all. In the same way that a sling may have been an unexpected weapon for David to take into battle against Goliath, Jesus chose the cross as the most unexpected weapon to defeat sin and death. That is a battle that we could never have won on our own. No amount of strength or dedication or perseverance would have allowed us to overcome the power of the grave. But that victory has been won in Jesus Christ. And that victory is ours when we choose to surrender and believe in him. So David's battle with Goliath does point us to Jesus' ultimate battle with the enemy, 
But remember that this story doesn't want us to focus on the giants. Instead, it reminds us that God uses those who trust in him to fulfill his kingdom plans. For David, that meant becoming the true king of Israel. But David's kingship wasn't the end of God's plan for Israel or the world. In fact, God's kingdom plans won't be complete until Christ comes again and establishes a new heavens and a new earth. But until that time comes, God is going to use those who trust in him to fulfill his plans for today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. And I would dare to say that you could be one of those people. You won't be king of Israel like David. You won't build the temple like Solomon. You won't rebuild Jerusalem's wall like Nehemiah. And you won't be the rock on which Christ builds his church like Peter. But God can and will use you to fulfill his kingdom plans. You simply need to trust in him. So let me ask, what does it look like for you to trust God today? And what will happen if you do? When I think back to that first summer, I was hired on at Crosspoint. I didn't actually think I would get the job. You know, there were some complications with my schedule at the time, which meant that every other church I applied to simply said, nope. You know, they didn't even bother giving me an interview. They just said, thanks, but no thanks. So my hopes weren't high, but I chose to trust in God regardless. Not only did I trust that God would provide meaningful work for me, I trusted that he would give me all I needed to accomplish that work. When I chose to trust God for that interview with Rebecca, and I chose to trust him when I accepted that position, I had no clue what I was getting myself into, or that I would still be trusting him at this same job four years later. But I believe that God has used me in these last four years to fulfill his kingdom plans. Not because you have to be a pastor to do kingdom work, but because being in this position has given me the opportunity to share God's truth with countless kids and families, and that is absolutely part of his kingdom plans. So trust God to use you wherever you work to fulfill his kingdom plans. Trust God to use you at school to fulfill his kingdom plans. Trust God to use you in your family to fulfill his kingdom plans. Choose to trust God and he will use you to fulfill his kingdom plans. 
we're going to take a moment now to pray. And so if you're like me and you get distracted looking around at other people, I encourage you to close your eyes and ask God this right now. God, how do I need to trust you today? Lord of hosts, how do you want to use me to fulfill your kingdom plans? God, I thank you for the individual ways that you have spoken to each of us today. Whether it was a reminder to trust in you or the confidence that you are using us wherever we're at. God, I thank you that you are present and that you choose to speak to your kids. Lord, I pray for everyone joining us today, whether in the worship center, Simpson Hall, or from home. Would they leave today transformed? Would you continue to work in and through all of us who call Crosspoint home? As you send us out into the world, sometimes to fight battles, Lord, in everything that we do, would it be for your glory? God, I choose to trust you today. Would you give us all that we need to do that? In the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.